The following talk was given by Bear Gokhan Bonabakar at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gokhan is a senior monastic at the monastery, where he serves as director of operations. He also oversees the monastery's burgeoning fruit orchard and helps run the National Buddhist Prison Sangha. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Interdependence Day, as we say here. Um, Shugen Roshi is away on vacation for the week, so I'm sitting here. An old worthy said, Consider the tree outside the door. Although it serves as a resting place for birds, it doesn't make an effort to call those that come, nor does it care whether those that leave return. When a person's mind is like the trees, they no longer oppose the way. This is from a commentary on the Diamond Sutra that I came across some time ago and has stuck with me. I think of the old dead ash tree on our field here outside the window. Before the pandemic, I was sitting with some friends in the circular steps and one of them pointed out all the birds that were coming to that dead tree and landing and flying away again. Consider the tree outside. Birds come, land for a while. Maybe they peck around for a bit. Maybe they sing. Maybe they settle in for a while and rest. And the tree doesn't intervene in any way. Doesn't do anything to try to control the birds. Isn't bothered when they come. Isn't bothered when they go. Doesn't hope for a particularly pretty bird to come. Or worry about a disagreeable one or wait for one to sing a beautiful song. When a bird flies off, the tree never tries to call one back on its branches. Consider the tree outside. When a person's mind is like the trees, they no longer oppose the way. They live in accord with the way. And of course the tree is like this. How would it be for that poor tree if it was concerned about the birds, what the birds were doing? If it felt forlorn when no birds came? If it really liked this bird and really wanted to avoid that bird? If it got upset when one pecked around too much or sang too early in the morning? It would be worried and anxious, irritated, kind of all the time. So practice is so much about working with our thoughts, studying, understanding our relationship with our thoughts, the nature of our thoughts, relationship with our feelings, our emotions, our body and the sensations of the body, objects and other beings, all of the things that we come into contact with and have a reaction to, usually with some thought involved, 
studying all of these relationships we have with our experience. And so the Buddha began here, saying, bring your awareness to this, study this. Your current relationship, he said, with your thought, with all of these things, is causing your suffering. If you want to be free of that, then look here, study here, so that you can change those relationships, see more clearly, so that we can be clear in our relationships. And the tree didn't really have to do any work to arrive at its relationship with the birds. What the teachings say is that our mind, your mind, originally is like that, is like the tree. But of course, that's not the mind that we usually encounter. Not the relationship with our thoughts that we usually have. We have constant reactions to the thoughts that come and go. We may not always see that we even are having those reactions, that we have a relationship with our thoughts, with all of these different sensations and feelings and reactions. But right from the beginning in Zazen, we're starting to see this. Maybe in trying to let go of a thought and getting frustrated that we can't. That's a relationship with that thought. Or really enjoying a stream of thought and not wanting to let it go, and seeing that. Thinking about thoughts that we've had in the past and wanting them to come back or bringing them back. Or sometimes I'll see how a, a thought will have just kind of passed through and then I'll be like, wait, what, what? can you come back? What was that? This seems to be our mind. How can we let our mind be like the tree? When I give instruction in Zazen, beginning instruction, I usually say something about these um, so to speak, aspects of our mind. That our mind thinks, it creates thoughts. That is natural. That is what the mind does. Thoughts come and go, or they stay and they peck around for a bit. We're not trying to stop this, but study this, direct, intimate study of this. And your mind can be clear and still. Know this, hear that, even if you don't know that from your own experience, even if you can't see that, haven't touched that. That also is your mind. For a while recently, Shugen Roshi was asking, why is it helpful to see into emptiness? It's like, seems like it's a good question, right? And it's sort of at the heart. It's like, 
we're trying to understand emptiness, so much of the teachings are pointing to that. And say that it is, that is the way th- through. That is the way to be liberated from suffering. But what is, what is that to see into emptiness? What is emptiness? Emptiness, emptiness means no inherent, empty of any inherent independent existence. Empty of the qualities that we project onto a thing that we impute into it. And so it's not denying anything. There are things and thoughts and people and me and you. But none of them have any inherent independent existence. One way of understanding this is that what we are experiencing is mostly what we project onto what we are experiencing. It's our own projection. And it's hard to see this. It's hard to see into this. The teachings are offering us that question. Look. And so much of the teaching is about delusion. It's about not seeing that. Trying to understand how it is that we misperceive Right? It's hard to see that we are imputing anything, that we are assuming that things actually are independent of other things. Hard to see that we think they are so disconnected from our experience. Hard to see how we heighten the importance of our reactions, how we kind of glorify our desires elevate our aversions, our opinions, how much stock we put in our thoughts, how much we identify with them. The teachings over and over and over again, the teachers from their own experience are saying, look here, look here. And if we're paying attention, our experience is asking this question. Why is it so painful to be corrected, to be wrong about something, to receive some criticism. Not so long ago, I was washing dishes, dish crew. I've done it so many times, that sink. And I was washing the dishes and another resident was next to me rinsing. And I passed a dish over and she rinsed. I passed a dish over and she rinsed. Then she passed one back to me and missed something. So I washed and I passed it back. A little later I passed something over, something else over and she passed it back. She said, you missed something. And I sort of made a comment. I was like, oh my God, you're being like kind of tough about this. <laughs> and actually there was a whole lot of soup still stuck to that pot. <laughs> and she said, you know, you don't have to get defensive. It's not like a comment on your worthiness as a human being (laughs) or as a monastic. And at the moment, I was actually feeling pretty, like, clean and not defensive. But boy, over the years, there has been a lot going on at that sink for me. (laughs) Competition, 
judgment, jealousy, irritation, comparison. Kind of amazing to see how much we create whole world, a whole world around what? What are we creating? And it's kind of, I mean, as I've been thinking about this, it's like it's kind of miraculous what we create, our delusion. It doesn't feel that way when we're in the middle of it. Of course, my Ability as a dishwasher is not who I am. I've been studying a text called The Awakening of Faith, which is a um, kind of concise, short treatise which was translated in China early in, in um, sort of right at the beginning of as Zen was arising in China, sixth century. And it's, it's an explanation of, of, of Buddha nature and ignorance, how Buddha nature is obscured. And this is a text that I have tried to read a number of times over the years and just like kind of didn't get it. And finally, I'm understanding some, finding it helpful. And, and kind of as I'm hearing it, realizing that, that this does underlie, it's like I've been hearing these teachings my whole time that I've been practicing, feels like. It's like it's like ex- explaining what I've been happening, hearing, and starting to understand from my own experience, recognize. So, just very briefly, Buddha nature, sometimes called Tathagata Garbha, is our original mind, the mind of suchness. It is unconditioned. It is not dependent on anything. And this is the original mind that we all share, this Buddha nature. It's sometimes spoken of as as our original enlightenment. And so we all have the potential to realize this. And that's a really important part of this teaching. We all have that potential. But it is covered over, it's obscured. And it's obscured by adventitious defilements. And this is where I've, this was something that I've really sort of enjoyed finally understanding. I've seen this term over and over again in the teachings, and I would look up what does adventitious mean, and like even when I've looked it up, I don't like remember it or quite take it in. So adventitious means happening or carried on according to chance rather than design or inherent nature. It's coming from outside, not native or original. So these defilements, these adventitious defilements, are obscurations that are not intrinsic to the mind. They arise as a result of causes and conditions. Our particular conditioning So the definition says chance. It may not really be chance. It's not just random. When I get upset about something, it's a result of my particular karmic conditioning, particular causes and conditions. 
but there's no inherent connection to the mind. When I get upset, that's not, that's just passing through. It's not inherently connected to my mind. They are not mind. As convincing and consuming as our emotions are upset, our desires can be when we're in them. They're like the trees, like the birds that come and go in the tree. They are not the tree. And so I just have found this helpful. It's like another way of seeing that, of explaining that. All of these things that pass through us, they're not the mind, they're not who I am. And so adventitious defilements is sometimes referred to as obscuring emotions, fixations, defiling emotions. And there's a lot in the teachings about these obscurations because it's such a part of our human experience. We need to, it is such an important place of study. And we should be careful in hearing these adjectives defiling, obscuring, not to take that as as sort of bad or wrong, or even quite to be gotten rid of. They obscure because of the way that we fixate on them, because of the way that we take them to be real when they arise. And so any emotion really is an obscuring emotion especially the strong ones, anger, jealousy, wanting, doubt. When we're caught in an emotion, we're not seeing our true nature, we're not living out of our true nature, in our true nature, not standing on the ground of reality. We're standing in that emotion, whirling in that emotion, and caught up in it because of how how we take it to be, what we take it to be. That is that inherent existence that is being pointed to, that truth, that misperception. Years ago, I think this was my first year of practice here, I had face-to-face teaching with Myotai Sensei, who was a teacher here, an important teacher here for, for some years, many years before I got here. And I went into face-to-face teaching with her. I was upset. Someone had broken my heart a little bit. Someone had chosen someone else over me. And so I took that in and just sort of shared what I was feeling. And she met me there. It hurts. It hurts. And I also asked, is this a... Is this sort of appropriate? Is it okay for me to bring this into face-to-face teaching? Is this a Dharma question? And she said, whatever barrier you're facing, wherever you're stuck, that's what's keeping you from seeing your true nature. That's very helpful. I've always remembered that. So wherever you're stuck, wherever you're caught up, that's the place to look actually. And if we can look when we're in the midst of it, 
there sometimes can be real potential there to see what's happening, to see through what's happening, into what's happening, what is actually happening. And so this is why we start and continue practicing with just stabilizing the mind, calming the mind, so that we can see. And so as we do calm the mind, stabilize the mind, we're calming these obscurations and finding some stability so that when obscurations arise, when strong emotion arises, when we're caught in what we get caught in, that there's more of a chance of seeing what's happening, of studying what's happening. And again, a little bit of a caution. We can't push anything away that thoughts are not the problem. Think of the tree. It's obvious that the birds are not a problem for the tree. Totally natural for them to come and go. They will keep coming and going. During this past session, I was um, having some strong reactions, feelings, some anger, some frustration with myself, my teacher, some doubt, some unfamiliar feelings. And it was kind of amazing to watch this happen. I was grounded enough that even though I was feeling some difficult feelings, I could sort of see, oh, look what's happening. And kind of see, look where that could take me if I jumped on there. And it was happening around Doksan. And so I kind of knew when it was coming. And I was thinking, you know, it's like when you're on the ocean, you can see a rainstorm, a squall coming. You can see it out across the water. The water darkens, the sky darkens. You can see the water kind of boiling with the rain. And you can see it moving towards you. And you know it's going to hit you, right? You're going to get wet. You're going to get tossed around. If you're on a boat, you prepare, right? Make sure things are tied down. And you know it's going to pass. Sometimes you can actually see the other side of it. And so if we, aren't, if we are not, if I am not all of these things that pass through me and that I de- identify with, then who am I? What is this self? What is our true nature? How do we learn to stand in that rather than standing in this insecure ground of the self. I was thinking of a residence meeting that we had here in the first, the first week of the pandemic, when the first week that we had um, been closed. And we were just checking in. Um, how's everyone doing? Just kind of hearing from everyone. And I'd been feeling a lot of different things that week. Again, some things that it felt like I had not felt before. Feeling a little crazy sometimes. 
I think feeling a little proud of that. Right? Like feeling that range of emotion. And I shared some of that. And we went around the room and people shared different things. And towards the end, Hojin Sensei shared and she said, you know, I've been feeling this, all these different emotions. And I'm okay. I'm okay. And hearing her say that, I realized, yeah, I'm okay too. Right? And I've known that I'm okay. I realized that I'd been doing something with those emotions that I didn't need to be doing. Sometimes I hear myself talking, saying something, and realizing it's not quite true, kind of feeling it in my mouth, hearing a complaint maybe, saying that's not really like true. I'm creating something as I say that. What is it that we take refuge in, that we put our faith in, usually, habitually, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in all of the reactions that we have, our opinions, mostly without even knowing it, without being aware that we're doing that, because we so believe in them. In the Platform Sutra, one of Wineng's teachings about, is about taking refuge in the purity of mind, purity of our mind. What does this mean? As we learn to allow our minds to settle, we can turn there, we can choose that, and sense see the difference. Christina Feldman, who's a contemporary Theravadan teacher, brings something of this into her translation of the precepts. She says, I vow to treasure the clarity of my mind. And this is the precept against speaking about intoxicants and not clouding the mind, about paying attention to what we put into our mind. But I hear her also is speaking about how I use my mind, where I turn my attention, my mind energy, where I put my faith. I've been using this as a reminder. I vow to treasure the purity of my mind, to honor and maintain, explore that mind. So, consider the tree outside the door. Although it serves as a resting place for birds, it doesn't make an effort to call those that come nor does it care about care whether those that leave return. When a person's mind is like the trees, they no longer oppose the way. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.